as we open up your word and as we listen to what you have to say to us. Lord, I invite the presence of your Holy Spirit as we dig into what <coughs> you have given to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this morning we're looking at John 3, 16 through 21, which I've entitled, Taking a Look Under the Hood. I titled it that way because we're looking at what eternal life is. Two words, what do they mean? So let me uh, go back to my high school years. And when I was in high school, I had a summer job at a Volkswagen Mercedes BMW dealership. I know Volkswagen, BMW didn't seem to go together, but that was the dealership. And I was the guy who cleaned up the cars that had come in from Germany <clears throat> so that the salesman who sold the cars could present a nice shiny new car to the person who had just purchased a new car. <clears throat> and I got to know my German sports cars that summer, and it was really fun. Occasionally, I worked Saturdays, and I really enjoyed that because things throttled back on Saturdays, and they were a lot of fun. And one Saturday, there was a customer who brought in a 1956 Mercedes Gullwing Roadster, which looks a bit like this. Uh, those cars go for $3 million today. They were still pretty high-value cars back in those days. And uh, the whole dealership shut down <laughs> because every mechanic wanted to go to that car and pop open the hood and see what was underneath. And it was an, a, an immaculately restored car. <coughs> As you probably know, this is the car that inspired the DeLorean and it inspired the Back to the Future car. So the Mercedes Gullwing Roadster was a pretty <laughs> pretty big deal. <clears throat> if you're a mechanic and you see a new car, you want to know how that car is wired up. You want to know how that car is empowered with the, by looking at the, <coughs> at the engine on the inside. Well, John has just told us in John 3, 1 through 15, something dramatic about eternal life. And what he said was eternal life is on the basis of sacrifice. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. That is an astonishing statement because it's about the clearest and most concise expression of the gospel that you can get prior to the cross. Jesus is using an illustration Nicodemus would instantly relate to. Jesus, uh, John, is expressing the essence of the cross, the sacrificial nature of the cross, in a way that is about as concise and as compact as you possibly can. So what John wants to do now in John 3, 16 through 20, <coughs> 21, is pop the hood open on salvation, on eternal life, and look at the details that are underneath the hood. Now, full disclosure, if we were to take the entire Bible, there's a whole lot more we could say about salvation. What we want to do is look at what John is saying about the salvation he just talked about in John 3, 14, 15, and 16. 
So here's a strategy. We're going to start with John 3.16 and take a look at that, at that verse. And then we'll <coughs> take a look at John 7, 3.17 and 18 to show how Jesus did not come. And then uh, we'll look at 19 through 21 and show that spiritual coming to Christ is often a journey. So here's the John 3.16 vision. It's a vision of extravagant love. And John 3.16, which you know well, is a verse that, that sets the stage for this idea about eternal life. It is based upon the over-the-top, lavish, extravagant love of God. Here's the verse. You, you know it well. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And I need to start with some, with some background. Remember, the first 15 verses are a story about Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. As soon as John, the gospel writer, gets to verse 16, John breaks in with his own explanation of what just happened in this discussion with Nicodemus. Now, why does John, the gospel writer, feel like he needs to do this? Well, this gospel is written um, in probably set, at, least, at least 70 A.D., but probably 90 A.D. So the gospel has had many, many years of explosion around the ancient world. And the gospel of John is the only gospel explicitly written to lead people to Christ. It has an evangelistic purpose. We see that at the very end. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in His name. The Gospel of John is written so that the readers would read this and come to know Jesus Christ in a personal way. So John feels the need in John 16 through 21 to pop the hood open and say, let me explain to you the details about how this thing called eternal life <clears throat> is, <clears throat> is designed <clears throat> to work. And so John 3.16 gives us a, a paradigm. And I would call it the 3-2-1 paradigm. The 3-2-1 paradigm. Here's how it works. We start with a triune God who loves. A triune God who loves. The Trinity... Is, is hinted at, at least two members of the Trinity are hinted at or expressed here. The Spirit, obviously, is all through the Gospel of John. But we start with the number three because salvation starts with a triune God who loves. And I say this often at, at Grace, but the Trinity is such an important thing for you to know. Because what the Trinity says is that the triune God was in a love relationship for all eternity prior to the time that anything was created. Father loved the Son. The Son loved the Spirit. The Spirit loved the Father. There was never any competition. There was never any comparison. The triune God has had an eternity of loving encounters and loving memories. And sometimes you get to a, a birthday of a child and you reminisce back about a decade or two decades 
of loving memories. Remember the time when we were camping and it, and it rained and the fire went out and we were cold? Yeah. Kind of fun, thinking back on it. Kind of fun. Wasn't fun at the time. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have an eternity of loving experiences that enrich their divine being. We can't even begin to comprehend that. So in John 3.16, what we, we realize is the Father has given us something that is incalculably, it's hard to say, incalculably, I didn't even say it then, extremely valuable. And what He's given to us is His Son. He's given us His Son. It's not like God gives His Son into a place of safety. It's not like God the Father gave His Son and He had an armored 2018 Suburban with bulletproof glass and tinted windows like he's a politician driving in a motorcade. He didn't send his son into the modern world where there's good health care. He sent his son into the ancient world where things are dangerous and you get sick and have accidents and you die. So God the Father is sending his son as the deepest expression of his giving love. And the point of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave, is that this is the triune God giving what is most valuable to him. Mike Mansour was a Navy SEAL who was killed during Operation Iraqi Freedom. He died on September the 29th, 2006 in Ramadi at the age of 25. Mike Mansour was a pretty amazing guy. Um, he was positioned on a rooftop with a SEAL team, and an, an, an insurgent lobbed a grenade up onto the rooftop. Mansour saw it, instantly realized it would kill them all. He dove on top of the grenade. The grenade exploded. He died. Half an hour later, all of his SEAL team buddies were spared from death. So we could put Mansoor's name in John 3.16. Mike Mansoor so loved his SEAL team that he gave his, only, his one and only life that his teammates could be saved. Love is wrapped up in sacrificial giving, especially when you give that thing which is most valuable. Interestingly, I, I wondered how many more people have done that? How many more people have jumped on a grenade to save their friends? From World War I to 2006, there are 16 documented examples of a soldier falling on a grenade to save his team. After Mike Monsoor's death, there were five more documented examples. Why would anybody do that? It's because you, you so love the friends that you serve with that you're willing to give your one and only life to save them. So in the three, two, one paradigm, we see a triune God who has this over-the-top, lavish, and radical love. Now we go to the, to, the, to the two part of the three, two, one paradigm. And what we understand is that there are two human destinies. There are two human destinies. It comes right down to it. Humans face two options, and only two perishing 
or eternal life. Now, people in our culture don't like either or options. In fact, in 1982, there was a book by John Nesbitt called, the, uh, called Megatrends, 10 New Directions Transforming Our Lives. Now, now Nesbitt's book is, is 35 years old right now, <coughs> and, and yet it's, he's still mentioned, he's still referenced as being an insightful <laughs> author uh, about the future. And uh, Nesbitt, Nesbitt's 10 megatrend, number 10 was, in the future, and, and we're the future he was talking about, people will go from either or to multiple options. And we are in the era of multiple options. Fact, says the Huffington Post, there are 80,000 ways to drink a Starbucks beverage. 80,000 ways. I was uh, not in Bartlesville, but I but, uh, was traveling. I think, I, I think it was, we were in Fort Worth over Thanksgiving. And somebody in front of me at Starbucks ordered the longest drink I, I have ever heard. It was triple this and quadruple that and extra hot this and minus, minus this and two pump this. And it was just room like this. She didn't even approach the 80,000 options that you have in building a drink. We don't like either our options. Uh, Many just might offer as many unique customization options as Ferrari or <coughs> McLaren. There are 10 million ways for you to order a Cooper Mini. We don't like either or options, and yet Jesus presents us in John 3.16 with an either or option. <coughs> um, and by the way, in our culture, there are some things that are either or, either or. Uh, Super Bowl. Either one team wins and another loses, or the other, I mean, it's either or. World Series. Either the NL team wins or the AL team wins. Um, computers. Uh, I'm no computer expert, but I'm told that at the root of the language is ones and zeros. It's binary. The language Braille is a binary language. Either the thing is raised or it's not raised. So it's not popular to have either or, but reality is some things are either or, and Jesus says that salvation is either or. He also says both conditions begin now. Eternal life is a condition that begins the instant you come to Christ. Now, the instant you receive Jesus, you receive regeneration and the Holy Spirit and power and those things extend after you die. The same thing is true also of perishing. What Jesus would indicate is perishing is something that begins in this life and then <coughs> is permanentized after you die. So what would it mean to perish and have that begin now? Well, perishing means that you are living a life of self-centeredness in the present. It means it's all about, all about you. Your, your worldview revolves around you. I'm number one. I rule. It's all about me. My marriage, it's all about me. My family, my kids, it's all about me. My job, it's all about me. Everything's about me. My whole life is all about me. My pleasures, what I enjoy, what I don't enjoy. Now, you can, you can see a lot of people around you that are perishing who look pretty good on the outside, pretty impressive. 
they're perishing in the sense that life is progressively so revolving around them that they are unable to see that the source of that life is the God of the universe. And they, they, they can't thank him or receive revelation because of him. And after you die, that perishing condition is extended into the next life. You die physically. You die spiritually. You are separated from God. That separation is terrifying because it's a separation from the blessings of God like beauty, light, love, honor, kindness, goodness, everything that makes life worth living. You are separated from that. That is a perishing that is terrifying. Remember one time <clears throat> I, was, uh, I was boating in Washington with my kids. And when I've sailed, I have, I have stepped from the boat onto the dock. I may have used this illustration before. And, you know, it's, it's easy to get up on the dock because you've got a boat that doesn't move. I'm on a motorboat, small motorboat. I jump off, the motorboat moves backward. I end up on the dock like this. And that was, a, that was like a terrifying experience in that split second. Perishing, in the way Jesus uses it, is an experience that I take that one experience that I felt in that split second, and that's the sense of what perishing is like. It's a terrifying loss of all that is valuable, including my sense of personhood that I was hanging on to. So the three-to-one paradigm, we got the Trinitarian God, we have humans with two destinies, then we move to number one, and number one is God gives His one and only Son. The triune God, there are two destinies, and God gives His one and only Son. Back to the verse, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Remember Numbers 21, <coughs> people of Israel are in the wilderness, they're complaining Snakes swarm into their camp. They bite people. The people are dying. They go to Moses. Moses, stop the snakes. Moses prays. God says, Moses, craft a bronze serpent. Lift the bronze serpent up on the pole. Tell them that whoever looks at the bronze serpent will be relieved of the effects of the venom. And Jesus applies that in Nicodemus's presence to himself, and he says essentially to Nicodemus, I'm the snake on the pole. I'm the serpent that was lifted up. I'm the one who's going to be the sin bearer. I'm the one who's going to be the sacrifice. Now, let me give you a quick theology of what that means, what the, what the quick theology of the cross. I could say a lot more about this. Josh could say a lot more about this. Here's a quick theology. When Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and when the gospel writers and when, well, actually when the, when the New Testament writers are talking about the cross, they refer to at least four things. And the first one is the concept of substitution. And the idea is that Jesus dies in our place. Jesus dies in our place. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ died once for all. 
the just for the unjust. That's a substitution phrase that he might bring us to God. That means Jesus is our stand-in. So when Jesus uh, is, uh, John the gospel writer, is talking about reflecting on what Jesus does, that God gave his son, (coughs) he's giving him as a substitutionary sacrifice. Here's the second concept. It's the concept of punishment. Jesus is paying a penalty. God is infinitely just and righteous. When injustice takes place, the God of the universe, who is infinitely just, has to do something. His justice has to be satisfied. And so he does the radical thing, which is 2 Corinthians 5.21, where he made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's a a statement about substitution and punishment. And the idea is that Christ's death was substitutionary. It was also penal. Now, I will tell you that this is an unpopular concept, and I read all sorts of blogs these days, and I hear people saying, oh, that's just, it's an ugly thought that Jesus would have to take our place. And yet, the Greek terms used consistently throughout the Old Testament suggest substitution and punishment together. He paid a penalty. He took our place. Jesus' death um, is also a purchase price. Love this little Greek word that literally means out of the marketplace. The word ex agarazzo means out of the marketplace. You are purchased out of the marketplace of sin. You are purchased out of the slave market of iniquity, evil, wrongdoing. So the idea is that Jesus saw you languishing in that marketplace of sin and he purchased you out of that marketplace for himself so that he could be, you could be his own possession. And then, finally, we have the friendship factor, and that is Romans 5.11. We rejoice in God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. The word reconcile means to reestablish a friendship. So when it says, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, the giving is a giving and sacrifice. And the giving and sacrifice is substitution, punishment, purchase price, and the restoration of a relationship. We go from His enemies to His friends, from a ruptured relationship to a restored relationship. We go from disaffection to be daughters of the King. It's an amazing shift. So here's a three-two-one paradigm. Triune God, two human destinies, and God gives His one and only Son to be our substitutionary sacrifice. What's the right response? The right response is to believe in that. And what is belief? Well, I went to Cuba four months ago. I went into the cockpit. I said, guys, I want to make sure that you've done your pre-flight check. I want to make sure that you guys are sober. I want to make sure you guys are in a good mood today. And those guys turned around, said, Rod, we're good. Did I do that? 
I did not do that. I did not do that. I got on that plane. I sat down in the chair, believing that that plane would take me from Miami to Havana. And belief in Christ is similar. You rest in the truth that you have been told, that Christ died on the cross for our sins, that He rose from the dead, and that I can enter into eternal life now that stretches on into eternity. I rest in that truth, and something astonishing happens. It's John 3.3. It's being born again. It's regeneration. It is instant inner transformation. Now, that's John 3.16. Now, we move to a clarification. Jesus tells us how the gospel does not work. John 3.17 and 18. Verse 17, for God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Now, let me just pause there for a second with that verse, because the question is, did Jesus come into the world as a negative influence? Remember, He's popping the hood open on salvation, asking the question, did He come into the world as a negative influence, like just to, just to condemn people? He has to ask that question, because um, in the ancient world, there was the main Greek god named Zeus. Zeus sometimes did some stuff that was good, but mostly he was capricious, weird, quirky, and bad. And Zeus would destroy people's lives just because at times. You may remember that he chained Prometheus to a rock so that an eagle could eat out Prometheus's liver every day for eternity. Um, <clears throat> his wife Hera was just as bad. Zeus was always unfaithful to Hera, so Hera would blame Zeus's lovers, and to get revenge, what Hera would do was kill the children of these adulterous liaisons, and may remember that Hercules was pursued his whole life by Hera. And so, when John writes this, the gospel has been taking over the world. And what are the objections in the ancient world to a father sending his son. They're thinking, Zeus, Zeus. You say to me, really? Were they really thinking Zeus? Yeah, they really were. Because you know, you know who was the Roman equivalent of Zeus? Jupiter. And how do, you, how do you get Jupiter from Zeus? Well, this is really how it happened. Zeus pater, Zeus pater, Zeus pater, Zeus pater. Say that a bunch of times and it tur turns into Jupiter. And Jupiter is the Roman equivalent of Zeus. So Father Zeus, could he send his son to condemn? Well, Zeus would, would send evil into the world. Does God the Father do that? Does he send his son to condemn? And the answer is no, he does not do that. He doesn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. That's the point. So what John is doing is he's going into the worldview of the Greek people and he's, he's trying to do a little bit of apologetics here because they would have thought something, something negative about this. So, quick takeaway. <clears throat> Be sensitive to the worldviews of the people that you're talking to when you tell people about Christ. Be sensitive to their worldviews. 
Here's an article by the Pacific Standard. Why is digital witchcraft so appealing to young women? Why is that? Well, the Huffington Post had a very cogent answer. Do you know how to speak the reality of Jesus into a young woman with that worldview? There are times when you need to be very sensitive to the worldview of the person you're talking to. John is sensitive to the worldviews of the people who are reading the Gospel of John. Uh, here's another article. Trendy magic, witchcraft tops pop culture charts again. Big trend, especially among young women, young high school women. Do you know how to speak Jesus into that worldview? <clears throat> Here's another example. Huffington Post. American religion has never looked quite like it does today. And I'll read what I've underlined and read. Between 2017, or 20, 2007 and 2014, the percentage of atheists who said they feel a deep sense of wonder about the universe on a weekly basis rose a full 17 points from 37 to 54, 54%. Why should that be important to you? The reason why it should be important is because atheists are seeking the spiritual. They're seeking the supernatural. And you as a follower of Jesus claim that you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Are people seeing the fullness of the Spirit in your life in such a way that they say, I admire that person's spirituality? Where does your spirituality come from? See, John's popping the hood on salvation. What he's revealing is that people have mixed ideas about the Christian faith. And John is modeling to us, we've got to be sensitive to worldviews if we're going to accurately articulate the gospel into the culture that we're living in today. <clears throat> so, I want <clears throat> to ask you how well you do that, how well you do that. I'll, I'll tell you, you know, one of the things that you can do that is a great question to use these days is... Where are you this year in your spiritual journey? Where are you this year in your spiritual journey? What's it like for you in your spiritual journey this year? And just see what people say. You know, one of the great ways to love people in their current spiritual journey is to ask questions and to listen to them with love. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but so the world might be saved through him. So, here's the problem. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. Why then are some condemned? Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Theologically, what he's saying is all of us are born into a fallen world. All of us are fallen human.